Well, Psalm 88 is a plea. The heart-rendering request for life by a troubled and oppressed servant of God. Here is a prayer expressing the kind of raw emotion of desperation, pain and suffering. And it's unrelieved in its sorrow and seemingly unanswered with any positive outcome. The psalmist is addressing to God, Yahweh of my salvation. So verse 1, O Lord, Yahweh, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Notice whom he addresses. He's a plea to his Lord, capital letters all the way through, tells you Yahweh, the personal name of God. It is Yahweh, his God, that he's calling upon, but specifically the God of salvation, the God who can save, the God who does save, the God whose predisposition is to save, and specifically the God of my salvation. He he is his saviour that he's calling upon. He knows God as his saviour, which makes the whole plea and prayer both bitter and sweet. Uh, Sweet in that it's God, his saviour, who may be able to help him, bitter in that it's God, his saviour, who's not helping him, who's not saving him. It's God who seems deaf to his pleas. I cry out day and night before you, verse 1 or verse 2, let my prayer come before you, incline your ear, hear my cry. But it's also why he's so persistent. In verse 1, in verse 9, in verse 13, he, he keeps crying out to God. Verse 1, day and night I cry out. Verse 9, every day I cry out. Verse 13, in the morning I cry out to you. Yet his pleas for help seem to be unanswered. For he goes on praying and there's no relief in his suffering. I mean, the last word of the psalm is darkness. Talking of answered prayer and unanswered prayers is normal, but frankly, it's a little confusing. What we generally mean when we say it is that if we get what we ask for in our prayer, then that's an answered prayer, whereas if we don't get what we ask for, then that's an unanswered prayer. But that language actually can't be right, can it? For that makes God our servant rather than our master. It means unless he gives me exactly what I ask for when I ask for it, then he's not actually answering my prayers. Well, that's not how you treat your master. That's how you treat your servant. That's not you do if it is God you're talking to. Surely your master can say no to you. That's an answer. It may not be the answer you want, but it's an answer. He may say yes. He may say maybe. He may say wait a little longer. There's all kinds of answers that the master can give us. He hears our prayers, like the prayers of the psalmist, but for his good reasons, he may choose not to do as the psalmist requests. Certainly, Jesus will teach, if your child asks you for, uh, for, for, for a fish, will you give him a serpent? Of course not. But what if your child asks for a serpent? Will you give him a serpent? It depends, you see, on God as to what he thinks is in our best interests. 
for what is in the best interests of the purposes and plans of God for this world or for our life or our children or our grandchildren yet not born. And that appears to be the case in this psalm, which is part of the reason why it's not everybody's favourite. Indeed, it's a pretty dire lament. But as we listen to this psalmist's plea for life, we just have unremitting suffering. And we don't like that. And we'd want to say, well, he, he didn't get his answer. But of course, the answer may be no. His prayer comes from the pit, desperately pleading to God to lift him out of this downward spiral into death. It starts with his soul in verse 3, full of troubles, my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. His troubles we learn are of in the rest of the psalm, how his friends have deserted him in verse uh, 8 and again in verse 18, how he's been close to death from his youth as it is in verse 15, as it is that God has afflicted him. But it's death which seems to govern the whole atmosphere of the psalm. Verse 4, I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. This is what the Old Testament calls Sheol. We, we use the word Sheol there in verse 3 because we really don't know how to translate it. We don't have a, a single English word for it. Maybe the grave would do it, but even the grave is more physical than Sheol. Sheol is the place where the dead go. Is the, it's the other side. It is the darkness in which the dead exist. It's, it's usually negative in the Bible. It's a dark, murky, nasty place you don't want to go to. But it's not the same as hell. It contains hell. Hell is in Sheol. But so is heaven in Sheol. Sheol's just the other world. It's, the, it's the, not the living in this world. It's the other world. But most of the other world of death is negative. And you can see that being spelt out here in verse 5. It talks of the dead and the grave, where God no longer remembers, where they're cut off from him. In verse 6, it talks about the depths of the pit and the regions of darkness and depth. Now, verses 10 to 12 has this series of rhetorical questions. It's the place where there are no miracles, where God's not praised, where you, you don't hear the gospel message of forgiveness, of mercy, of righteousness. You know nothing of God's righteousness it's called, it's a lovely little phrase there, it's an awful phrase, but in the land of forgetfulness, it's, it's where you aren't anymore because you are dead where you are. But for the psalmist, the real pain is how God is treating him. He's praying to God, Yahweh, verse 1, the God of my salvation, but he's experiencing Yahweh, the God of wrath and condemnation. See how God forsaken he feels in verse 5. He's like those set loose amongst the dead where God remembers him no more. The way his prayer seems to not to go anywhere, it's, it's, it's as if he's in the grave already, no longer able to reach out to God because he's already there. 
in Sheol. And the suffering he has got has not come from himself. It's not an accident of history that he's experiencing, but it's come directly from God. Look in verses 6 to 8, for example. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy on me, and you overwhelm me with all your ways. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. God is the direct agent in his suffering and pain. God has afflicted him. Uh, It's the constant theme of the psalm. Look across to verse 13 following, or 14 following. Why do you uh, uh, cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? I suffer your terrors, your wrath has swept, your dreadful assaults. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. He he will not take the blame from anybody but God. It is God who is doing what he is doing. Some people perceive God in a kind of dualistic fashion. There's the good God and the bad God. There's Yahweh, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then there's the devil. And there's this war between the two. And so when anything goes right in your life, that's, that's God. But when anything goes bad in your life, that's the devil. So you get a new job, that's God but you then lose the job, that's the devil. You get a raise, that's God. You actually get put out to pasture, that's the devil. And so there's this war all the time between good and evil in your life, and the Bible has nothing of that. That is not how the Bible views it. There is the devil, but the devil is an agent of God's purposes, used for him, by him, for bring about his purposes. God is the one who is sovereign over everything in life over both pain and joy, both poverty and prosperity, both life and death, both healing and sickness. When I'm sick, that's not the devil's work. And when I get better, that's not God's work. It's all God's work. You can't excuse God from human suffering by saying, well, God can't do anything about it. He can't stop it. Or saying, well, God doesn't bring it, he only just permits it to happen. Uh, He's not in control of it. He doesn't intend it. That's not what the Bible says. That's not a biblical option to solve your problem as to why there is suffering in the world. This psalm, it's clear God is doing this to this man. And this man's God-forsaken suffering is under the anger of God, the wrath of God. And it's further amplified by God making him friendless. Verse 8, it's awful, isn't it? You've caused my companions to shun me. You've made me a horror to them. I'm shut in so that I cannot escape. This is an awful loneliness. His companions are the ones for whom you could look for and hope for love and care and support. But they've shunned him. They've looked upon him with horror. You can't help but read this psalm but start thinking of Job, can you? Has Job already come into your mind? Because, you know, the only friends Job had left were really no help to him at all, were they? Everybody else rejected him because, well, 
the tragedies that had fallen upon his life and then the appalling sores that were all over his body so that no one wanted to be near him. He'd become a horror to all people. So verse 18 here, he'll cause my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. The wrath of God is surrounding him. What he wants, of course, surrounding him at this time as he's on the edge of death, as he's facing the end point of all his sufferings of this world and only got the pit to look into, what he wants around him is his family, his wife, his friends. But what he's got around him is the wrath of God. And his friends, his wife, his beloved, they're all gone. They're shot through. He's alone in a terrible loneliness. Everybody has, they've not just left, they've deserted. They've shunned him. And so we come, we have him describe himself in verse 9 as sorrowful. My eyes grow dim through sorrow. So sorrowful his eyes have become that he no longer can see clearly. Through the veil of tears or through the weakness of age and pain and illness, he looks out on the world that he can no longer see clearly. Such is the nature of sorrow. And so with that understanding of his situation, we can grasp the plea he's making to God. It's it spelled out for us in the last half of the psalm in detail. But the whole thing is about crying out to God in such awesome, awful circumstance. You see the resumption, though, in verse 9, where he's calling upon Yahweh. Every day he's calling upon you, O Lord, Yahweh, the God of his Saviour, calling for help, spreading out his hand, pleading, nothing in my hand I bring. And while he still has life and breath, he's praying because the dead can't pray. The dead don't pray. They can't enter into the relationship with God anymore. And so verses 10 to 12, it's a very striking little series of arguments, of rhetorical questions, all of which are true. Verse 10, do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? No, God is not there. That is the nature of Sheol. You are cut off from the author of life. You are dead. God's works are not seen in death. Dead people don't rise up and praise God. They don't hear of his greatness or of his righteousness. Here is the awful reality of death, its finality, its theft of our very humanity, of our memory, of our relationships with others and our relationship with God. But he's still alive. And so while he's still alive, while before he's dead and can't do these things, the living does do these things. And so he is urgent in his prayer and plea for God to listen to him. With his questioning of God in verse 14, why, why, why do you, why do you cast my soul away? Why, why do you make your face, turn your face from me? 
and then goes again to describe his agony in verses 15 to 18 and his appeal to God implied throughout it. Why are you doing this to me, God? It's so contrary to you, the God of my salvation. Here then, in this frankly unpleasant, awful psalm, because it really is, isn't it? I, I don't mind saying some bits of the Bible are dreadful. This is dreadful. It's supposed to be dreadful. That's exactly what it's supposed to be. And it is in both senses, isn't it? Here then is the horror of living in a fallen world, of facing death in the world of death, of living under the wrath of God. The psalm's not pleasant, but it's really important. Not just because God inspired it, that would be sufficient to make it important, but because it's dealing with life, with reality, with our experience of life. Not every day, not all the time, not every person will go through this, but most of us will sometime. And some people, it's pretty much all of their lifetime. The Bible is not a book of pleasant pictures unrelated to the reality of life, but a book that deals with the truth, pleasant and unpleasant. It deals with life in all its sinfulness and death and judgment and pain and sorrow and suffering. That's why it's so important that we read it. That's why it's so important we take hold of a psalm like this because it's dealing with the realities of what life will be. Maybe not you today, but it may be your parents, it may be your children, it may be you tomorrow. In particular, it deals with life and death and doesn't pretend for a moment that death is lovely. It doesn't glamorise it. It doesn't romanticise it. It doesn't anaesthetise us from the reality of the awfulness of death. So much of today's society cannot face death. And so their grieving practices are all about denial. Letting go doves and letting go balloons. That's not what happens. What happens is the body gets put into the grave and is eaten. It gets put into the flames and it's burnt. Or the silly comments that you have at funerals. No, I can imagine he's up there looking down at us. He's enjoying himself now. He's he's having a beer with his mates and telling his old jokes. I'm sure he's better off. We cannot face death. Because it's such a denial of all that we hold dear. Our whole life has got to do with seeking to maintain life. Those who wish to kill themselves, we say, have got a psychiatric abnormality. They need help. Life is what we want. Death is what we have. And so, have you noticed... We no longer kill animals, we euthanise them. What a stupid word. There is no good death. Death is always bad. We calathise them if you like, but it's never good. It's awful. 
And so we don't mourn at funerals anymore. We celebrate lives at memorials. There's no coffin. We, we don't want to see that there's a dead body that we actually called us together. We, we, we just have a little private cremation somewhere else where just the funeral director deals with that. And we come together and celebrate a life rather than mourn a death. And so there's no word from God. There's only eulogies telling us how wonderful the person was. There are bright colours and happy songs. And of course, the more we eulogise, the more we speak well of them, the more wonderful they are. Then when we get home, the greater the emptiness and the loss. I mean, if he was a dreadful old rat bag of a man, well, I go home and say, well, at least he's not going to trouble me anymore. But when I go home and find out that this was the most important person that had ever lived in Sydney, that had only done wonderful things all the time under all occasions, then our loss is even greater, isn't it? In fact, death is so horrible we hide from it. And we take years and years to grieve. It's astonishing how years after that person who has been close to us dies, we suddenly move into a deep sorrow or find ourselves bursting into tears over something tiny and small. We must never minimise the horror of death or the horror of living in the sight of it. Hebrews chapter 2 talks of Lifelong slavery created by death. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Mr. Psalm 88. From my child, from my youth, I've been afflicted like this. It's why when Jesus stood beside the tomb of his friend Lazarus, we read that awful little verse, Jesus wept. I, of course, learned it as a Sunday school child because we had to learn a memory verse every week. And so as soon as I discovered what was the shortest verse of the Bible, I went for it because I could manage that one. manifestly not understanding what it was saying. Something to make fun of. Our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, when faced with the death of his friend, wept. And the crowd around said, see how he loved him. He knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knew that this death was not permanent, that Lazarus would die some other time. He knew that in a moment's time he was going to call out, Lazarus, come forth, and the man who was dead four days would rise up and take off the, they would take off the, 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 the funeral garb and he would live again. He knew that. But yet, he wept for the horror of death, the awfulness of the victory of sin, and of Satan, the loss of fellowship of his friend, the love he had for his friend and the horror of what his friend had had to go through. 
Jesus wept. When we see our friends cry at at a funeral, don't stop them. Join them. For they are right to cry in the face of death. It is the appropriate response in the face of death. For as it says in Hebrews, it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Or again, our God is a consuming fire. Death is the wages of sin. We mustn't water down the wrath of God on human sinfulness. We mustn't water down the horror of the wrath of God and the living under the judgment of death or the failure of this world we live in. Sure, there are wonderful things in this world, aren't there? There's wonderful things in life. But the day we ate of the forbidden fruit was the day that death entered into our world. And that death has dominated our world ever since. As we sicken, as we age, and we bald and we bag and we sag and we lose our memory and our teeth and our eyesight and we dissolve in that inevitable journey to the grave. It's what dominates our very existence. It's only when we accept the reality of the horror of death And we stop this silly notion of good deaths and face what the psalmist is facing, the seeming silence of God when we cry out to him about things in the face of our impending destruction of our life. It's only when we understand this and feel this psalm that we will understand how and why Jesus cried with tears to a father who could save him from death but who didn't for on that night that he was betrayed that is what Hebrews 5 said happened he cried with tears as he prayed out to the father who could save that is what is described for us in the garden of Gethsemane I preached on it at Good Friday this year it's a wonderful passage in Mark 14 you can download it off philipjensen.com. It's just, it's just such an incredibly important passage. How Jesus was, he went with Peter and James and John. He went into the garden and we read, he was greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is sorrowful even unto death. And then he went and prayed. And he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. See, Jesus knew Psalm 88. Jesus knew what it was to face the pit, Sheol, the grave. And have God not rescue him from it. He knew what that meant. And yet accepted the will of God. Not because, oh, it's going to be a wonderful rest. I'll have a weekend just in the grave having a nice sleep. And then after a while pop back. Not because, it was nothing like that. 
For in that death, he knew the cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knew that in death, he was bearing the sins of the world for you and for me. And he shrinked back from it, crying out with loud tears. You see, without Psalm 88, you won't really fully appreciate Gethsemane and Calvary. So it's not my favourite psalm, and I guess it's not yours either. And, you know, you think, oh, gee, I've taken half an hour off from work to come and hear doom and gloom and the worst kind of possible sight. But, my friends, if you know the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is really edifying, isn't it? Because when they say, see how greatly he loved us, how great was the Father's love for us that we should be called the children. God shows his love for us in that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. When you hear of the love of God, it makes sense because you've faced death like the psalmist does in horror. And you know what our Lord Jesus did, that we don't have to face that death unresolved because we believe in the resurrection let's pray heavenly father we thank and praise you for the lord jesus christ for his death to overcome death that by his death he might rise again and by his resurrection give us new life that death not be our last word that death while still being the, the penalty for sin, is overcome in the righteousness of our Saviour. So we thank you, Father, and praise you for the death and resurrection of your dear Son. And we do it in his name.